Thank you very much, Mr. Dundee. As to my drinking, this is indefensible. And you have my abject apologies. I find of late that I have very little choice in the matter of expressing emotions. I can either drink or I can weep. And drinking is so much more subtle. Will you please leave? But it's for my insubordination I was not rude to that woman. Someone should remind her that Christmas is more than barging up and down department store aisles and pushing people out of the way. Now, Corwin... Someone has to tell her that Christmas is another thing finer than that. Richer, finer, truer. And it should come with patience and love. Charity, compassion. That's what I would have told her if you'd give me the chance. Henry Corwin was, of course, right. Christmas is about more than running up and down department store aisles. But how many of us right now are doing just that or something like it? Spending so much time rushing around, preparing for Christmas, that we don't take the time to relax and enjoy the holiday itself. So instead of marching on with season five straight away in a bid to get the first episode out before Christmas, I'm going to take heed of Henry Corwin's words and take a breath and take some time to sit by the fire here at the Twilight Zone podcast and enjoy a drink and a chat with a friend. And that friend is a man who has been in the business of keeping the rod sailing flame alive online as long as, if not longer, than I have, and that is Paul Gallagher. Paul, welcome back to the Twilight Zone podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. I always enjoy doing the show. Oh, it's it's good to have you back. We were just speaking before, you know, off mic, how time goes by so fast. And, and oh, it does. Between the last time we spoke and this time, uh, you actually, you went to Sailing Fest. Unfortunately, I couldn't go, and I'm so sorry that I missed your presentation do you want to tell us a little bit about it? It, it went well. I, you know, I was concerned going in, uh, you know, because I didn't know how the numbers would be. And uh, I think as I was indicating before, it, it wasn't what we were able to have in 2018 and 2019, unfortunately. Um, but uh, but still, it, 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 was, it, it was a good turnout. And the people who were there were very uh, interested and engaged and asked a lot of good questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, so I, I was pretty pleased. I was afraid that it was going to be, uh, you know, just like half a dozen people or something, but, yeah. uh, it wasn't bad. Obviously I know what it was, but for anyone who missed it, uh, this is kind of a pet topic of yours, isn't it? Can you tell us what your presentation was about? Uh, one of the things I, I started doing on my blog a couple of years ago was what I call my, uh, Serling's rezoning, uh, efforts, mm-hmm. uh, which was something that looks at the Serling, because obviously most uh, Serling wrote a lot of original scripts. You know, they were his idea. He developed them and wrote them as scripts. But a number of them, uh, including a number of very famous episodes like "Time Enough at Last" and "To Serve Man" and "It's a Good Life," are based on short stories by other authors. Mm-hmm. And so, being the obsessive fan that I am, I was uh, tracking these stories down and reading them, and and finding it really interesting to see some of the choices that uh, Serling made. I don't know about you, but I feel like growing up, I would always see, you know, that something was adapted from another work. And I thought, oh, okay, well, then pretty much all the author had to do, or their script scriptwriter had to do, was just sort of take the scenes and the dialogue that's written down in paragraph form and just mm-hmm. put them into script form, maybe make a couple little changes, and boom, there you go. But of course, that's not the case. Uh, <laughs> Serling would often make uh, some pretty serious changes but never more than he had to. It was interesting. So anyway, I've done that for a number of uh, Twilight Zone episodes. And then I started doing that for Night Gallery episodes as well. Uh, so uh, Nick Parisi, who, of course, the, the multi-talented director and president of the uh, of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, uh, was kind enough to let me come in and do a presentation on what I wound up calling Serling's reframing efforts, which is mm-hmm. we looked at four episodes of Night Gallery and compared the finished episode to the story that it was based on and uh, just pointing out some of the surprising 
contrasts and uh, what Sterling brought uh, to the story. Wonderful. Well, I'm sorry I missed it. Hopefully, you know, uh, future sailing fests, maybe you'll be able to expand on it or do something different. Or, you know, I would love to see you up there again doing your presentation, Paul. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fun. I'd love to. Like I said, I only got a chance to do four. Mm-hmm. I think of the of the and this is just from memory, the 38 scripts that uh, Nike uh, that uh, Sterling did for Night Gallery up to uh, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there were based um, on works by other authors. So yeah. I just went over four of them. So there are there's plenty more to do. <laughs> what I saw tonight, because like I said, it it can be a busy old time, can't it? You you spent so much time getting ready for Christmas, the holidays, sure. that by the time it comes around, you're just kind of exhausted, and you've right. You know, you spent so much time running around that um And I was like, well, I could just get straight into season five, but I thought, you know what? Why not just stop and take a breath? That is being prepped behind the scenes, you know, in praise of Pip, obviously. But I thought, let's just chill out have a nice conversation about a few sailing twilight zone night gallery things and then in not too long a time you know in praise of pip will be out and and we can carry on on that journey but um i do like to get people involved and it's probably something maybe i'll expand on a little bit next christmas but at the very last minute i put out the word on twitter you know any discussion points you know because one of the great things I remember, Paul, about Sailing Fest when I was last there with you is it's just some of those great conversations with friends and, you know, like-minded people in the bars, in the park, where you're yeah. just talking about, you know, favorite things, comparing things, all those great fan discussions. So I thought, you know, you and I could try and replicate that today for a little bit. So you up for that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I do. I miss that. That, that was always fun. We got a couple of questions and then uh, there's something we want to kind of touch upon at the end. Maybe maybe a Christmas gift idea if sure. there's enough time left. So a couple of people on Twitter asked a similar question. So we'll tackle that. We've got Dave Mitchell who said, we enjoyed the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet on the newest Twilight Zone incarnation. What are some other classic TZ episodes that you'd like to see reimagined in a modern series, either to pay homage or even to fix shortcomings. And my friend Brandon Shea Matala uh, asked a you know a similar question. He said, if there was a season three of the new Twilight Zone, which episode of the original series do you think would make a good remake? Now, before we get into this, people can get quite emotional about stuff like this. Oh, yeah. The, even the thought of doing this, but this is all in good fun. We're not going to go out and remake these things anyway. It's just for the fun of talking about it. Exactly. It's just, it's all hypothetical. It's a bit of fun, nothing more. So, uh, Paul, you want to, you want to tackle this one? Any come to mind? Well, the funny thing is that for me, and I think this has come up before when, because you and I have done shows about the, the, the Jordan Peele remake. Mm. And so this idea has come, come up before and I'll admit I'm always surprised, you know, the number of people be like, oh, I really love Eye of the Beholder. I really love Time Enough at Last. And they'll be naming these like absolute classics. And they'll be like, oh, I'd like to see a remake of that. And yet the funny thing is, I I almost feel like rather than see a remake of a classic episode, because I feel like Mm -hmm. that's really asking a lot of of someone, I, I would almost rather see a remake of some of the episodes that maybe were an interesting idea that uh, didn't do well, or, you know, like something like the bewitching pool. There's an example of something that a lot of times, cause I've had a lot of discussion with that over the years with people. And there's a f- pretty fair number of fans who will say, you know, it's an interesting idea. I like the, uh, the story concept, yeah. but I just was uh, badly botched with the bad dubbing and, you know, so I, I'll look at something like that and sort of, I guess you could say the more interesting failures mm-hmm. And say to myself, what if we did, you know, a, a remake of something like that or, or potentially some of the others that, or, or perhaps, you, you know, another thing would be great would to see would be potentially a well-done remake of some of the videotaped episodes, mm. even though I, I, I'm very fond of them. You know, some people are like, oh, I can hardly watch them. I don't feel that way at all. I mean, no. I still, I can get completely absorbed 
in Henry Corwin's plate or <laughs> Barbara Nichols acting in, you know, 22. And it, I might wish that they were, had been on film instead of videotape, but you know, I feel like Twilight Zone, they, they did a fantastic job presenting those in spite of the limitations, yeah. but imagine those being done uh, in a, a really well done way, you know, something like static. I tend to gravitate towards the idea if we, if I did remakes, I would want it to be of episodes that I think uh, maybe could have been better executed, but weren't. I mean, I, I'm not opposed to remakes per se. I like a lot of movies, remakes and so on, but we have seen a couple of pretty, pretty bad uh, Twilight Zone ones. The Eye of the Beholder one springs to mind from the 2000 series. That was yeah pretty difficult to sit through it was yeah but I, i've got two things that spring to mind the first one sort of crosses over with yours but maybe for a different reason and that is night of the meek because mm. you know we we did get a remake in the 80s which i think was one of the better 80 episodes yeah agreed night of the meek has a purity to it it has a timelessness to it i'm a big fan of the charles dickens story a christmas carol i think it's one of the most mm wonderfully constructed stories there is but one of the pleasures yeah. of that story for me is that there are so many versions of it you know right every person can have their favorite version of it and i think sailing has really created such a timeless tale it's immortal as it is but it'd be kind of nice to see it you know readapted you know done as a play uh, done as a, a movie done as this done as that you know it's just it's just got that purity to it in the same way that a christmas carol has that it's just such a good adaptable story that i think i, I would just really love to see that um and every couple of years there's another version you know uh, with rod sailing's name on it i think that would be pretty great yeah, agreed. And and one of the reasons that I it's funny because on I uh, and I, I think we've talked about this before and, and agree on this that it's like I, I feel ambivalent about remakes because on one hand I think oh well what can touch the original mm -hmm. uh, you, you're you're asking the impossible and and there is you know some truth to that but I always feel like one value with with remakes and reboots is they do sometimes bring in new fans who then subsequently mm -hmm. look at the old version. Um, the eighties twilight zone, whether someone loves it or hates it, there's no denying the fact that that brought in a new generation of fans who then mm -hmm. learned about the original and became fans of it. I think that works sometimes with covers of songs. You know, you, you hear a cover, you find the original and you become a fan of it. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm like, yeah, I'm not crazy about reboots and remakes, but at the same time, I, I see the value, you know, in that. I think my second choice would be an episode that is not far from my lips when uh, people talk about least favorite Twilight Zone episodes. I don't think it's the worst. I think there's probably worse episodes than it, but I think on a personal level, it's just an episode that, that doesn't really do much for me. And that is a thing about machines. Oh, sure. Because I think one of the fatal flaws in it is it was made at a time when it would be so easy not to use the things that he uses <laughs> in the story. Right. Like True. if you don't like, if you don't like machines and don't use an electric razor, you know, I don't even use an electric razor now. So, you right, know, that right. kind of thing. But I just think the time we are living in at the moment, it seems a lot more fitting to have that because we are yeah. so dependent on, on technology and you can play around with it because like Nightmare at 30,000 feet wasn't, it wasn't a remake per se. I, I think it was more just paying homage to the name uh, because it was so yeah. different. And I think you could probably do that with a thing about machines. Yeah, because think about it. We didn't even see anything on the wing. Exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, so I think it probably could take a pretty straight adaptation with just different things, or you could take it in a slightly different direction. But I think there's definitely something to be mined there with the twilight zone with right. our, our dependence on technology. So that's one I would be quite happy to see remade. Yeah, that, that that's a good choice. You're right. Because it, it is far harder to unplug today. Yeah. You know, yeah. than it would have been then, you know, you can always use, you can, you know, Oh, if your electric razor is acting funky, well, you can always get <laughs> a safety razor and some shaving cream. Well, speaking of things on the wing, which you mentioned uh, 
a little while ago. Um, my good friend Zach Moore, this is one of his favorite subjects. What's the better Shatner episode, Nick of Time or Nightmare at 20,000 Feet? You want to tackle that one first, Paul? There's two aspects to it, isn't it? It's it's better or favorite, you know, so whatever. Exactly. I was going to say, it, it, it's like picking, you know, a, a you know, favorite Beatles song or something. I don't know. It's just... It, it it is difficult and, and I, I like both of them. And it's amazing because think about it. I mean, Chatner has the the privilege of being associated with not one but two of the most famous episodes yeah. uh, of the series, you know, which is really remarkable because there are some actors who are well known, like for example, Anne Francis, uh-huh. immediately everybody Twilight Zone fans after hours, you know, which is such a perfect, beautiful episode. But fewer people, you know, are are fans of of Jess Bell. I happen to like it, but, you know, there's one that, you know, I don't think there's any contest about which one would win. But with Shatner, we've got two really good episodes. Now, for me, I have to admit, I lean more toward Nick of Time. And part of it, I think, is because I always felt like Twilight Zone was at its best when it wasn't just a straightforward, I guess, for want of a better term, horror show. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always liked it better when it kind of worked on you psychologically. And I always liked the fact that in Nick of Time, you, especially the first time you watch it, are sitting there like, okay, is there something supernatural going on here? Or is this, you know, just all in his mind? Mm-hmm. Now, by the end, we know it's really all in his mind, but it's an open question up until then. You know, you're like, does this thing have some power? Is something going on here? You know? Um, and I, I like the way it kind of creeps in like that, as opposed to, oh my gosh, there's, you know, a gremlin on the wing, which believe me is a great story, but it just, I, I feel like Nick of time is a little more clever. Mm. And so, uh, I actually did a poll on my blog a few years ago and I thought at the time I thought, well, I'm voting for Nick of time and I know it has its fans, but man, everybody loves nightmare 20,000 feet. So there's no way that it won't win and surprisingly nick of time took more votes well where, where will my vote go because it's so interesting like you say that they are two ends of the twilight zone spectrum and shatner's right. in them both you've got the subtleties of nick of time and the more out there nightmare at twenty thousand feet and i gotta say paul i'm with you for the reasons that you mentioned i just think it is so smart and it takes more skill to pull off in a way. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Like I said, you know, oh, yeah. we, we love it. But um, to pull that off, to, to build that tension when there is absolutely nothing there, you know, that is, yeah. you know, we have the mystic seer as this kind of thing, but it, it's an object, you know, it, with something, well, absolutely nothing being there, you know, there's no one sort of lurking in the shadows, there's nothing casting any spells or anything like that. It's just all purely done with conversation, music, right. and, you know, acting. And I absolutely love Nick of Time. It's, you know, it's right up there with the Twilight Zone for me. So I, I think I go with Nick of Time as well. Like I said, it's it's really tough because Nick of Time is, is fantastic. It's so much fun uh, and, and I'll watch it any day of the week. But uh, mm-hmm. just if I had to, yeah, got to give Nick of Time that edge. Now, a couple of people asked more sort of direct. We can't use everything, unfortunately, but a, a couple of people asked some more direct sort of um trivia type questions and Barnabas Frid asked I'd love for you guys to shed light as to why Rod gave up creative control on Night Gallery now it's been a while since I've I've kind of dug into that kind of thing but it was my impression that he he just you know he'd done five years of Twilight Zone and he knew how grueling that was exactly he didn't want to do that again was you're more of an expert on the Night Gallery than me Paul Am I on the right track there? You're absolutely on the right track. That that really uh, is what it boils down to. Uh, you know, it's funny. I could just to step back and sort of put this into context. Uh, uh, a lot of us uh, put the blame for Serling's early death on cigarettes, and believe me, they played a huge role. But we can't discount the fact that he was quite the workaholic, mm-hmm. and he really drove himself very, very hard. I mean, he cranked out just an incredible amount of work before 
during and after Twilight Zone. The man just wrote, wrote, wrote. And when he wasn't writing, he was checking on other aspects of the business. You know, there's a famous quote of his where he says, uh, when he was executive producer of Twilight Zone, that if he dropped a pencil, if he stopped to pick it up, he was like two weeks behind schedule. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of truth to that. It, it takes a lot out of you. And I think that, you know, and he's someone who, you know, a lot of people have a, well, it's good enough, <laughs> not Rod Serling. And uh, he, he was always going to like work and sweat uh, and bleed to make everything absolute best that it could possibly be. And that takes a toll. Mm -hmm. So I think by the time Night Gallery came along and they were interested in making it a series, he thought, well, I don't want to go through that grueling thing. But hey, they're actually calling it Rod Serling's Night Gallery. I mean, you know, they they were trading Universal NBC, uh, you know, were obviously trading on his image. And so his feeling was, okay, I may not be the one who's technically in the producer's seat, but hey, you know, surely they'll defer to me uh, at least a good deal of the time. You know, I'll, I'll have a lot of say in it. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean he had no say. Uh, he did manage to get his way, but it took a lot of arguing and fighting. And as time went on, he just got to the point where he was like, not even getting calls back. And then plus, obviously, he wasn't crazy about, you know, what unfolded on screen. So it's kind of tough because, yeah, if he'd taken the executive producer role with that, then clearly it would have been a better show. But it also, <laughs> frankly, might have killed him sooner, yeah. I hate to say. But that's really what it boils down to. I don't know whether it's recently been on air, or I only just saw it recently. He was on a talk show, wasn't he? I don't know whether it was I don't know, Johnny Carson or someone like that. Probably Dick Cavett. Okay, probably. And he comes out and he's like, uh, they're having a little chat, but it, it's when this show is still on and he's quite openly saying, it's not my show. It's got my name on it, but it's not my show. Yeah. And I take my hat off to him for that because I think quite often we we see people just putting the facade on the publicity facade, you know, that they everything's great, you know, and it's only when afterwards sometimes if something falls apart that we actually hear the real story but sailing was just out there saying no it's it's not my show and i, I gotta gotta respect him for that oh no question about it and that was the thing i mean he he did not as the saying goes suffer fools gladly mm -hmm. and if if something bothered him and it frequently did then he he was going to talk about it uh which is one of the reasons that his show the loner only went one season in the mid-60s and certainly was the case with night gallery and he he had finally written to them because he was so frustrated and said you know i'm perfectly happy to have you take my name off it let it be somebody else's night gallery mm -hmm. and uh they wouldn't do that so it's interesting it's like they wanted him on there they wanted his name they wanted his face but they weren't about to they were rejecting his scripts um not all of them of course but more than one would think you know you'd think that with his cachet at that point uh, just about anything he wanted to uh, propose or submit would be eagerly accepted. You know, all of us who are fans of his are thinking, boy, if I was in Jack Laird's position, and for those who don't know, Jack Laird was the, the producer of Night Gallery, oh, I would just, anything Rod wrote, thank you, you know. But, you know, that, that really wasn't the case. Uh, they took some and they rejected others. So that doesn't, that's not to say that every last thing Rod ever wrote was pure gold. And even a couple of the scripts that he did have uh, done on Night Gallery were not uh, really his his best work. But he also did some very good and, in a couple of cases, excellent top notch work on Night Gallery that rivals you know some things that he did on Twi Twilight Zone. Even so, yeah, it's a shame. I find um, because I, I'm covering Night Gallery over on Patreon, and I'm at this really interesting point in season two where we're getting to some really kind of experimental stuff because i think early on it was it was fun stuff like oh this person you thought he was dead but he's not dead and you know this kind of you know the real yeah. kind of tales from the crypt or ec comics kind of stuff sure. but it gets to a point in season two with things like midnight never ends which yeah you know, it's sort of derivative of twilight zone in a way but it's got a, sure. a night gallery twist to it there's a, an episode called brenda which is just really odd and, and not not all of them work but it's just so interesting the things that yeah. they're trying to do with it so I, I you know there's a lot of light and shade there a lot to dig into and i'm kind of 
enjoying getting into that, you know? It's very much of its time. People have to remember when they when they watch it. And of course, a lot of times the fashions will mm-hmm. <laughs> will will clue you. Uh, you know, this was being produced. You figure that the Night Gallery movie premiered at the very end of the 60s, November of 1969. And then the series itself started in December of 1970 and ran through May of 73. So it's very much reflects that early 70s. And at that time, it was, you know, there was a, a turn towards stuff that was, yes, experimental, avant-garde, stuff that was a little out there, you know, like Marmalade Wine. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. Well, the staging of that one, Look for All the World, I mean, it, it looks like a stage play, and, and deliberately so. They would do, you know, Silent Snow, Secret Snow, um, which was uh, a story that, you know, tends to be very polarizing. It's almost like the, the bewitching pool of of night gallery where you have some people who really love it and some people who don't, but it's, you know, about this boy who, even though it's not said, he seems to be autistic and he's gradually retreating into uh, his own world. And at the end, it almost seems like that world sort of claims him, but you know, you weren't getting stories that were neatly wrapped up in a bow. I mean, if the, the same people who thought that twilight zone was out there would probably look at night gallery and just be like, wow, now we're really into, uh, Uh, the the land of uh, the different and the odd. But I think it really gave him an opportunity to, you know, it's funny because we think a lot of times there were things on Twilight Zone that that would scare us, but there was actually very little traditionally scary stuff on Twilight Zone. You know, you might get something like Night Call and the dummy that had kind of more traditional scares, but for the most part, it was more psychological, like Nick of Time we mentioned, or Obsolete Man and Mm -hmm. Monsters to Do on Maple Street. On uh, Night Gallery, you could just do more the experimental stuff set next to more kind of traditional horror type stuff, uh, like the Caterpillar, you know, and um, uh, things like that, uh, with a mixture with a few things mixed in, like this beautiful piece that uh, called the Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar, which is really kind of like the sequel in many ways to Walking Distance, starring William Wyndham as this man who. Uh, is is longing for the past and is feeling the march of time. And it's just a beautiful piece of work that was actually nominated for an Emmy and uh, frankly should have won. We're sort of heading into the Night Gallery. And, you know, I think traditionally in England, uh, maybe in the US as well, I don't know, ghost stories are a big part of Christmas over here. You know what I mean? So sure. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of on brand maybe to talk about this kind of stuff a little bit at this time of year. But um Kendall Brian Hunter, he asked on Twitter, and I'm going to have to defer to you on this, Paul, because he says, could you do a compare and contrast on Twilight Zone's Night of the Meek and Night Gallery's The Messiah on Mott Street? Now, I can talk Night of the Meek all night long, but unfortunately, I haven't got to The Messiah on Mott Street yet on my uh, my Patreon kind of journey. So uh, any comments on that, Paul? Do the uh, are you familiar with what the story is about or I not a bit not a bit oh okay no problem then the reason that they he he brought those two up together is because both of them uh, kind of uh, fit the bill just like um, as I was saying you could say that Messiah on the Messiah uh, on Mott Street is to Night of the Meek what they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar is to Walking Distance ah interesting and essentially you have Edward G. Robinson, which is an example of the kind of, you know, star power they really did have, just as they had on Twilight Zone, could bring in some very impressive actors. They also had some very impressive actors on uh, Night Gallery. Mm. And Edward G. Robinson in really what would be, you know, one of the last roles, uh, you know, that he did toward the end of his life, he uh, he came, he's basically playing this uh, grandfather who is the uh, caretaker uh, of his young grandson and they're living, you know, they live, they're rather poor and they live in this kind of rundown tenement. And the, 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 the son, the grandson is of course very worried and having the doctor come over and they're like, you know, is, is, is his grandfather going to pull through? And, and he's, he's trying his best to, to, to hang on because he's like, I got to take care of my grandson. And he's, you know, literally having conversations. I mean, you don't see who he's talking to, but he's actually having conversations with, you know, the angel of death and telling him, you know, go away. You know, the blood th- still flows through my veins. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I, I need to be here to take care of my grandson. Yeah. And, um, and he, he tells his grandson about how the, 
the prophecy about how the Messiah will come and and uh, that he he says he'll, he'll be big and black and looming against the sky. And the grandson who's scared for his grandfather's health goes out and he goes out, he looks for, he's out there looking for the Messiah and uh, he runs into this rather large man who helps him extricate himself from this uh, this rather persistent uh, kind of scary street guy uh, who, who's, who's, you can tell it's, you know, one of these people who has a, you know, get saved sign and is kind of yelling at him and everything. Interestingly enough, that character, it's just a bit part is played uh, by the same guy who was the voice of the Canimate uh joseph ruskin oh nice and, and of course we see him play the genie in uh the man in the bottle uh-huh. so he plays this kind of strange guy who's just like you know you know yes i'm the messiah and and the boy's just like no you're not and he's pulled <laughs> away by this this very nice man who was played by yafit kodo ah. and he hears his grandfather's voice saying he's big and he's black and he looms and he goes you must be the messiah and he's like I'm the Messiah. And he's like, yes, because you're big and you're black and you loom. (laughs) And anyway, without completely, you know, I don't mean to go into great detail, but the point is it's a very kind of heartwarming story. And in the end, things end very, very happily. And so, but you can probably tell from the description I'm giving already, it's like night of the meek. You're seeing kind of like people who are in a very kind of down and out, a desperate sort of situation Mm -hmm. clinging to some hope and by the end, having that hope rewarded. Wonderful. And so it's something that if you like watching Night of the Meek at Christmas time, watching The Messiah on Mott Street would be something that you would enjoy, if not as much, at least pretty close. <laughs> I can't wait to get to that one. Um, yeah. and, and it makes me think of a couple of things because in a way it's been Night Gallery's year because even though I haven't seen that episode, the painting for the Messiah on Mott Street is is one of my favorite ones. I really love it. Yeah. But there's been a couple of things come out. First of all, Night Gallery Season 1 is now on Blu-ray. Who'd have thought we'd ever see that? Have you picked that up, Paul? I, believe it or not, I haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, because the last time I checked, it was <laughs> there's, been, there's been so many things to, to, to buy and to do, and I was chipping into the, the Kickstarter for the Rod Serling statue, which unfortunately that didn't yeah. work out. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm going to be ordering that. I think the last time I checked, which I'll admit was a couple of weeks ago, it, was, uh, uh, it wasn't available, but I think by now it is. So. Because it's Kino Lauber who's doing it. That's an American brand. Um, so I can only... I've got a multi-region player, but I, I think for the moment I'm happy with my DVDs. But if a British company, you know, pick them up and and bring them over here, and it's a reasonable price, then I I might, you know, I I might stump up for it. But but I think much as I appreciate Night Gallery, and it's much more of a selective rewatch. Once I've gone all the way through, I don't think it's as essential for me to have you know the sure. the best version as it is with the twilight zone so no and that's understandable i mean twilight zone is for a lot of us is really kind of like tv comfort food mm. you know and and no matter how many times we see certain favorite episodes we feel like you know oh this is great it's, this is the one with uh you know it's time enough at last or oh it's yeah. you know whatever the episode happens to be you're like yeah let's watch it again and yeah. i and i know you know night gallery is definitely i know it doesn't have quite that kind of compulsory Oh great! Let's let's watch the one again. You know where the guy gets the earwig yeah. in his ear. You know, <laughs> I I understand that even if you watch it, you go, "Wow, that was really well done." I'm glad I saw that. You know, I, I get it. I mean, I, you know, I'm enough of a fan that I'm more than happy to rewatch these. But but I, I understand that people are maybe not as eager uh, to see them a dozen times as they as they are Twilight Zone episodes. So. And I guess the other thing, the other big thing, is that um, there was a Kickstarter campaign that thankfully did reach its target and that was for a beautiful hardback book called night gallery the art of darkness which is a collection of all the paintings that we see in night gallery in in this wonderful volume i spoke to scott skelton about it probably going back a couple of years now when they were originally going to release it but then it was delayed because i think they actually found more paintings uh, to put in it so it did eventually come out and it is I think you can go out and buy it. I mean, we contributed to the Kickstarter to get it at, at the original uh, release, but I think it's on websites um, 
like the Creature Features website maybe to, to buy it. Yeah, that's the, the site for it. It's called creaturefeatures.com. Yeah. And if you go there, it comes right up. You can watch it. There's a little two minute and 22 second uh, video that kind of gives you an idea. And it, and it's, as it points out that it's this 300 page book. It's, it's, it's really well done. I mean, this is a heavy, glossy paper there. I mean, a lot of care has been put into this, yeah. but it's like, the, you know, you, it's going to be, there's a soft cover version. There's a hardcover version, but you know, you're not going to be spending less than $75 to pick this up. Mm-hmm. That's pricey. However, every bit of what you pay is right there on the page and you can, you can see uh, all the care that really went into it. And um, it's great as it's forward by Ann Serling and Guillermo del Toro, the director, who's a huge fan of, of night gallery uh, does an introduction and uh, it's got these just gorgeous reproductions of every single one of the paintings. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very impressive. And, and, and you also read a lot, you know, it gives you history of the series and um, uh, talks about the fate of the paintings, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, yeah, it's, if you're a fan of the show, it's, it's fascinating. Some people might have watched the pilot for night gallery and never went any further. You know, I, I think I come across people like that all the time. Everybody knows the cemetery, you know what I mean? Because it's that yeah. first story. And we all know that painting, you know, that that wonderful painting of the cemetery. But when you open that book and see it in detail that you've never seen before, we've seen screen grabs of it on, on the computer. We've seen the episode itself. But seeing it in that book in such crystal clear vision is is it's like seeing it like you've never seen it before and it's like that with you know pretty much everything in the book to be honest but um have you have you got any favorites in there paul yeah i do and you know before i mentioned some i was going to say you're absolutely right about that that is what makes it valuable because obviously you can see you think oh i can see the paintings on the show and obviously you can but you're only going to see it for a few seconds before it transitions from Sterling's introduction to the, to the show itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even if you pause it, you know, you can't look at it in the kind of detail that you can hear. It's I, I've seen kind of like, you know, some details here, you know, really that I, that I couldn't before. Um, and it's great to study them. And obviously they, it's not just a straightforward reproduction. They actually have a write up with Tom Wright, who was the um, artist for uh, almost all of them giving his commentary yeah. on kind of what he was going for, you know, like I just yeah. opened it at random here to the ghost of Sorwith place. And he says how, um, um, I didn't want to do the girl in the ghost image as a story dictated the way I saw it. The girl was repeatedly running over and over again into the jaws of death. And so you kind of learn kind of what his thinking was behind the way he did uh, a lot of these paintings, uh-huh. which is, is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say some of my favorites and just going by how I like the painting, sometimes I like the painting and I also like the episode very much. Occasionally I like a painting and I didn't really care for the episode. Yeah, same here. Yeah. And occasionally I, I like an episode and I don't care for the painting. So it's kind of weird. Um, but I'm very, I was always very impressed by, I think what may be my favorite or at least in my top five is the, the lone survivor. Yes. That that's on my list here. Isn't that good? I so see. I tend to love any kind of sea artwork, anything that depicts ships, mm-hmm. and so the idea of having this kind of like uh, skeletal figure in this boat, I think, is just is fantastic. Yeah, uh, I love the look yeah. of that. That's very very well done. Uh-huh. And uh, another favorite from the first season is uh, the doll, uh, and that's also a favorite episode as well. So that that makes it kind of nice. But I mean the the um, the painting of the doll it's so you know it has no face and so it's it's very kind of ghostly looking and yet there's this skull that's kind of hovering over the top of it uh-huh. and it's uh, it's very creepy and very fitting for that for that story a couple of other favorites I, i've always loved the one for pickman's model which of course shows the creature that uh, uh-huh. uh is sort of stalking him um the one for the phantom farmhouse uh which shows kind of the ghostly figure in the foreground and the the forest uh, and the house in the background, I think is very, very cool. Uh-huh. And um, I also like very much the uh, one for um, the one that he did for, um, he loved doing these episodes that involved um, pitchmen back in, in the day. And uh, he has this one that he did for uh, Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator uh, that 
uh, I, I really enjoy. Yeah, there, there, there's a number of them. It's funny because you really, it's, it's, it's great to just be able to page through this and just see some of the, uh, oh, another favorite of mine actually is, uh, which goes with an episode that I'm kind of eh about, is The Funeral. It, that's one of two. I mentioned earlier, Matheson did two, and uh, he did uh, The Big Surprise, and then he did this one. Uh, the story's a little silly, to put it mildly. I'm sure some people would agree. You know, you've got uh, the actor who played the commandant on Hogan's Heroes, who uh, goes to a funeral home uh, run by the actor Joe Flynn, and the idea is that he's like, you know, I never had a proper funeral. I wanted to arrange my own funeral, and he's got all kinds of witches and goblins that come to his funeral home and just kind of wreak havoc. And <laughs> it's, I don't know. I mean, if you're into it, it's kind of fun, but mm. anyway, the, but the painting is beautiful. It shows like this horse drawn hearse and these mourners and it's just got these beautiful blacks and grays. And I really uh, love the painting for it. Needless to say, it's got a lot of very, very cool pieces of art in here. Well, Lone Survivor was definitely on my list. You're absolutely right. You know, the the seascape with the boat in it, with the skeletal figure in it. I would have that on my wall, absolutely. Another couple, remember in the pilot when the paintings were all kind of linked with the stories themselves? They were all kind of oh, yes. interwoven more. And it's something they dropped going on. And I'm not surprised because... You know, there's only so many times you could work that in, probably. But um, there's one called The Escape Route about, like, a Nazi who has been in hiding since the war. A kind of brave thing about Serling's treatment of it and maybe the way it was presented is that... I've got to choose my words carefully here. I don't think he, he so much as makes him a sympathetic character, but I do think... Is he just annoyed that he's got caught or does is he showing actual regret? That it's, right. it's quite a layered kind of performance that we get here. I'm not saying, obviously, we should be feeling sorry for a Nazi war criminal. That's not what I'm saying right. at all. But I think it's presented with a level of maturity. But we see that he's wanting to escape to this painting. He goes and sees this painting all the time of like mm -hmm. a, a peaceful river with a fishing boat on it. The painting itself changes in this one. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's slightly different from a lot of other night galleries, but at one point we see this man in the fishing boat. And I think the artist has, has just so wonderfully captured that kind of internal thing that's going on with him. He just wants out of it, and uh, and I think he really captures that beautifully in the in the face on the painting. You know, it's marvelous. I mean, the, the entire pilot is is fantastic. The cemetery mm -hmm. eyes, and an escape route. And you're right, uh, the, as as written by Serling and as performed by by Richard Kiley, who who starred as as the Nazi in it. Um, it is it's a very uh, rich portrayal you know of this guy who's been on the run for years and hiding out in, in south america as so many uh, escaped nazis did mm -hmm. I, I definitely don't think one of the reasons i think that he winds up damned uh, basically uh is because uh, no there isn't a trace of, of regret he's he's sorry that he that he's that they finally are closing in on him and i think that's shown that there's never a time when he he expresses any kind of regret for what he did. He's just tired of running. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I always felt like the way Serling sort of makes it crystal clear that there's, that there's no sympathy to be had for him is in the fact that when he finally gets himself good and drunk on that last night, he goes out and of course he confronts, you know, the, the elderly Jewish man who has recognized him and knows who he is and he kills him right there been a while since i watched it but you're absolutely right yeah he he, he you know because he's trying to pr to pr save himself from being revealed and mm -hmm. so he just just chokes the life out of him right there in the alley and then he's on the run quite literally we see him running through the streets until he winds up back at the museum where he's you know determined to get back in the painting and mm -hmm. sadly for him they've switched the bucolic lake scene for this concentration camp uh, crucifixion scene and uh he gets his wish you know, to be in the painting, uh, all to his horror. And, uh, 
Yeah, it's it, it's really really well done, and it's <laughs> we've been talking about night gallery episodes that are kind of like effective companion pieces to earlier Twilight Zone episodes. You could say that the escape route is the perfect companion to Death's Head Revisited. Yeah, yeah, those two. You know, I I should do a post like that. I could just be like, okay, here's the you know the Twilight Zone episode and its night gallery sibling. <laughs> Well, here's here's one for you then. It kind of leads on to maybe my last pick of uh, sure. s- some of my favorite paintings. Midnight Never Ends, I mentioned it before. There's probably a few connections you can make with Twilight Zone episodes here. The first one that comes right. to mind is like five characters in search of an exit. Right. But, you know, there's, there's probably a few others that you could uh, choose as well. But one of the reasons why I really like this painting is because it's the only one to feature Rod Sailing on it. Yeah. Playing a guitar of all things. But um, Yeah, or at least posed with one, right? And, yeah. and it's funny because the fact that he's in it harkens back to what is another one of its Twilight Zone predecessors, which would be a world of his own. The idea of an mm. author and his characters, uh, that wall being broken down, you know, uh-huh. between the creator and his and his creation. Now, admittedly, Midnight Never Ends is... Uh, it's, it's funny. It's one of those things where it's like, it's a good story. I'm not crazy about it. I like the concept very much. And I think uh, that's another one like Marmalade Wine, where they kind of filmed it in a slightly experimental kind of theatrical way that's, it, it kind of works. It's, 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 I feel like it's kind of mid-grade Twilight Zone. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Night Gallery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually like it quite a bit, um, to be honest, for, for that kind of reason that it, it, it worked better for me than marmalade wine in, in its experimental kind. Oh, it's definitely better than that, yes. And, and I'm fine with ones that are a little on the, you know, I, I'm fine for, you know, when they do stuff like, I think, the um, the Tune and Dance Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that gets definitely experimental and even gets a little, you know, pretty funky and <laughs> yeah. surreal at, the, at this one point. But for me, entertainingly so, I felt so. I think we touched on a few things there. I just wanted a nice laid back chat with you, Paul, for, for a couple of reasons, really. Like I said, you know, to take the foot off the gas really before sure. Christmas and just do something a bit kind of relaxing. Uh, but right. also that probably within a week or two of this coming out, I'll begin my coverage of season five, which means it is coming to the end of the twilight zone which means it will be the end of the twilight zone podcast and sure you know there are certain people i wanted to make sure that hopefully it's not the last time you're on the show i hope the mm. next time you're on the show it's you and i in binghamton sitting down and talking again you know oh, i'd love that and i do i miss that mm-hmm. uh I, I always enjoy coming on the show and and uh, anytime you'd like me to just just let me know and i'll be there absolutely and i know the way the show is structured it's you know for the most part it's a, you know, it's a one man show and obviously your listeners are in excellent hands Thank you with yours, but yeah, no, anytime. I, I just wants to make sure that I've got a list of people who have helped me out with certain episodes like yourself. And, and I just want to make sure I get them all on one last time before the, this show ends. So, uh, sure. you know, like I say, hopefully not the last time, but now we're, at least we've had this time if, if nothing else. So, uh, I right. know it won't be the last time I speak to you on here, though. But but thank you so much for for joining me tonight, Paul. And uh, tell tell us your links. Tell us where people can find you out there. Absolutely, you can. Yeah, you can find my uh, blog is uh, at Night Gallery, uh, thenightgallery.org. Uh, it's a WordPress blog, so if you looked up the nightgallery.wordpress.com, mm-hmm. it will take you to it. But if you just go to thenightgallery.org that takes you to it as well. In spite of the URL, the title of my blog is actually Shadow and Substance and subtitled Exploring the Works of Rod Serling. So they are right about primarily Twilight Zone, but I get into Night Gallery, The Loner, Serling's teleplays, anything that has to do with his work uh, is is going to be on there. Uh, and I haven't been able to update it as frequently as I'd like to because uh, it's been a very busy fall for me, uh, both personally and professionally. But I have some really good posts lined up and there should be some fun stuff uh, for people to, to read there in the weeks ahead, more of the reframing posts, comparing his Serling's night gallery scripts to their original source material and, uh, and, and some, and some other good, 
other good treats. So the nightgallery.org or nightgallery, the nightgallery.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. And of course, my main place to where it all started was on Twitter. So if you go to twitter.com, my username is also the night gallery. Got to put the the in there. I wish I just had night gallery, but <laughs> as you know, I launched it back in the fall of 2010 with the idea that it would just be night gallery. But then after a while I was like, no, I've got to cover the marathon on sci-fi and I've got to. So uh, over there I'm quoting and putting up facts and there's all kinds of fun stuff. So if you go to twitter.com slash the night gallery, and I also have a page on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, just go to facebook.com slash of shadow and substance, just write out of shadow and substance. And you can find my page over there. Thank you once again, Paul, and uh, and Merry Christmas. Yes, same to you. Absolutely, Merry Christmas to you, and uh, and I, I hope that uh, you wind up as happy as uh, Henry Corwin is at the end there, <laughs> as he charges off with the elf and <laughs> realizes he's going to get his uh, his his life's wish. It's nice, you know, or at the very least, a bottle of cherry brandy to enjoy with Mister Dundee. So, <laughs> an officer Flaherty. Okay, well, that, that's been our little uh, journey into something a bit different for Christmas. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, and I hope everyone out there has a, has a happy and safe holiday. And I will speak to you soon with our coverage of Season 5. Merry Christmas. Bye for now. Merry Christmas to all! I've had the nicest Christmas since the beginning of time. Nothing for you, nothing for yourself, not a thing. You know, I I can't think of anything I want. I guess what I've really wanted is to be the biggest gift giver of all times. And in a way, I think I had that tonight. Although if I had my choice of any gift, any gift at all, I think I'd wish I could do this every year. That'd be some gift, wouldn't it, Bert? Oh, sure would. God bless you, Bert, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you too, Santa. And thanks for the smoking jacket and the pipe. Don't mention it. <laughs>